with our family and friends and neighbors and community. Lord, may we be compelled by your goodness to share the gift that we have received. In Jesus' name, amen. Be seated. No, no, not at all. Thanks. Thank you, Andrew. President Ronald Reagan um, stood at the Berlin Wall. Some of you are old enough to probably remember this. He stood there at the, on the east side of the Berlin Wall. Um, excuse me, on the west side. It was June of 1987, and he was making his speech that has become famous for the one sentence in that speech. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall, he said. And he'd been advised not to do that. He had been advised by speechwriters and even his chief of staff to not say that. It was going to be too in your face. It was going to cause issues with the Russians, it was believed. But he did. He spoke those words. And, of course, we know that more than three years later, that, that wall indeed did come down. It came down at first piece by piece. I watched a video again of it today um, as, as German citizens took a chisel and a knife uh, and a hammer rather and just went up and just started pecking at that giant concrete wall that separated the east and west side of Berlin. And they just little piece by piece, chip by chip, were breaking it down. But eventually that wall did come down. It was breached in one spot and then it came down and it was just an amazing thing to watch, even again today as I watch the videos of those German citizens being united again. That wasn't the first major wall that came down. One, one came down almost 2,000 years before that, that had existed even longer, obviously, than, than that wall had. That wall that came down 2,000 years before was more massive. It was more divisive. And it had stood there for ages between the people of God who felt like they alone were the people of God and all the rest of creation, all the rest of humanity. And, and we need to see that. In, in the Jewish understanding of humanity, there were two kinds of people, Jews and non-Jews, okay? Now, in the New Testament, that changes. You're either in Adam or you're in Christ, so there's still a clear distinctive, but those distinctives are changed. Those categories are changed. So nonetheless, this, this wall was coming down. Paul talks about that in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, he says, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, and he's made the, both of us one. And listen to this, he says, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So that wall came down. We started seeing that last night in Acts chapter 10, where Peter went to Cornelius, and that one family, that one Gentile family, that one cluster of familiarity, okay, Cornelius, his family, and those friends of his that were gathered there that day, that, that wall came down. So it was breached. But in Acts chapter 11, the whole thing collapses. The whole wall comes down in Acts chapter 11. And so since Sunday night, as your pastor said, we've kind of been looking at the book of Acts. And it started with the commission. 
You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses. And then he gives a, an, an outline. There's a map there, okay? There's a map. It's going to start in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria then, and to the uttermost parts of the world. It stalled in Jerusalem. It stalled there. But then it comes to this other city named Antioch. And I was going to put a map up, and I don't like geography. I never was good at geography. Um, but I was going to put a map up just to help you. So just visualize for a second. Just close your eyes if you need to, and just look north of Jerusalem, okay? Even if you don't know where Jerusalem is, just look north. Go up north about 300 miles, okay? And just imagine 300 miles north of there is a, is a city called Antioch, okay? And so this northern city there is where all of a sudden it becomes ground zero for the gospel. None of us would have chosen Antioch. Now, Antioch is a big city. Antioch is the third largest city in, in, in that part of the world, in the Greco-Roman world. It had a population, they tell us, of somewhere between 500 and 600,000 people. It was, it was not a small town, okay? And it was as cosmopolitan and as commercial and as culturally diverse as you could imagine. There were people from all over the known world in Antioch at the time. So it was known for its diversity, all right? It would be celebrated today like any culturally diverse city or community is. It was known for that diversity. It was also known as a melting pot of religion. And what Antioch was, was famous for was a temple that was there. And the temple that was there was the temple of Daphne. And Greek mythology says that Apollo had chased this goddess Daphne and when they came together that relationship was consummated and that chase and that consummation was played out every day in this temple as temple prostitutes and men would come together supposedly reenacting this this relationship and it was known for that type of religion that type of worship in fact, a cultural saying in the day was, was the morals of Daphne was their way of saying that that city was just culturally, oh, excuse me, morally bankrupt. So it was a large city. It was a diverse city. It was a sin-sick city. What a great place for a church. What a great place for a church, you know? Susan and I joke about this because... Um, and my church will tell you, some of my folks are back there in the back. If they get, if they cause an issue, ushers, you can escort them out. Okay. <laughs> Feel free. Are there ushers here tonight, Ben? There, there need to be, you need people to control it tonight. Um, so, but it's kind of a joke at Westwood because, you know, I love the ministry. It's the people I can't stand, you know? <laughs> and so Susan and I'll see this, this Montana mountain, you know, the only thing up there are bears and deer. And we go, what a great place for a church. Let's go start one there. It's just a joke, okay? Westwood is just a joke. You know that. But Antioch, a lot of people, a lot of sin, a lot of diversity, great place for a church. And God understands that. So this church in Antioch is what we're going to look at tonight. And we're going to see what a world-changing church looks like. And it's not going to look like anything we would expect. It's not going to fit the model that we would expect. What we're going to find here are faithful saints, and we have no idea who their name is. They're not named anywhere. And they're blowing their city up with the gospel. 
And we're going to find some God-called leaders, again, not the ones that we might expect, who come in and they begin to make disciples. And, and we see what that looks like. And we're going to see that as this begins to take place, then that community begins to take shape in a different way. I want to ask you a question. If the people of Roxboro, and this is true for Theresa or Westwood, if the people of Roxboro who were unchurched, not a part of a, an active community of faith, if they were going to look at us and name us, what would they call us? What do you think they'd call us? In Antioch, those who looked at this culture of faith going on inside this church, as they watched these people live out this faith, it started as a derogatory term, but they began to call them Christians. And Antioch is the first city where the followers of Jesus were called Christians. What would they call us? What would they call you? What would they call our church over there? It's, it's a thought. I'll just, let's just think about it a little bit. So turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 11. And let's look, at, we're just going to look at a portion of this chapter tonight, okay? I've thought about this all day. Andrew, I almost texted you. I was sitting out on my deck this afternoon, just sitting out in the sun. I was, had my Bible and my notes. I was just praying through the message tonight. And I was listening to Andrew Peterson. And I thought, you know, I think I'm going to text Andrew and see if he'll sing that song tonight. Is he worthy? I really, I almost texted you to see if we could sing that tonight. So uh, praise the Lord. He just works those things out. So thank you for, for leading us through that song. Um, and that's really the distinctive that we're going to see about these people. They took Jesus seriously. They took his gospel seriously, and they took his gospel everywhere they went, everywhere they went. These are not pastors we're talking about tonight for the most part. These are just unnamed faithful saints in this church. So follow along with me there. It says in verse 19, now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. And then it says in verse 20, but there were some of them, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenist also. Hellenist there is a Greek or a Gentile, okay? When you see the word Hellenist, it means somebody that's not a Jew. So they spoke to the Hellenist also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was on them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. So he's referring back to what when he says up in verse 20, the persecution that arose because of Stephen. If you go back and look, we haven't looked at every chapter in Acts, but you can follow along in the footprint of how the gospel is moving. And Jerusalem is held up lots of times as a model, but I want us to see tonight Antioch is who we ought to be emulating, not Jerusalem. They had the apostles. They had the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. They had the birth of the church there. And were it not for the fact that a faithful deacon in that church named Stephen stood up in the face of the religious authorities and preached a message that offended them highly, and they stoned him to death. They killed him because of it. And the persecution that resulted from that is what forced the Christians to leave Jerusalem. They did not go voluntarily. 
God forced them to leave Jerusalem because of the persecution. And so that's what he says there. The persecution that arose forced some of those people to flee. And they traveled as far, he says, as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. It's, it's conjectured and it's probably true. Some of these folks who had been leaving Jerusalem are now going back to where they'd come from originally, back to their family, back to their business roots, whatever. They were going back to places where they, from, where they were familiar. And so they're fleeing and they go back to these places. But in verse 20, we see something happening. Those who had fled were still being restrictive in who they were. They were like Peter pre-Acts 10, only going to the Jews. It's okay if the Gentiles may be reached one day, but I don't want to be a part of it. But some of them did. We don't know who they are. All it says was that these men from Cyprus and Serene. Cyprus is an island. Again, just imagine 300 miles north of Jerusalem. There's an island kind of off to the east out in the middle there of the sea. And that's where Cyprus is. These others were from North Africa. Far south of there. So these men go back, these people go back into Antioch, and there they begin to preach. They've been called by F.F. Bruce, mavericks. Mavericks, they were. They were just these people, nobody commanded them, nobody told them. They didn't have an evangelism program to follow. They'd never been through EE or any of those tools. They just knew Jesus, and they took him into the city where people did not know him. It was a radical idea. But that's what they did. And so they had a willingness to engage those people who were in the dark. I mean, they just went to these people in their neighborhoods and in their workplaces. That's really all we know about them. They had Jesus in their heart. They had the Holy Spirit in their life. And they had the gospel knowledge of what Christ had done for them and what they had learned. And they took that to their workplace, to their marketplace, to their family back in those cities where they had come from. It's, it's, it's what we've been called to do. And as I've been thinking about this over the last couple of days, again, think about Jerusalem for just a second and think about what we're seeing here in Antioch. In Jerusalem, they seem to be known for what we see a lot of in the book of Acts is miracles in Jerusalem. A lot of miracles. We don't see so much of that in Antioch. We see people being discipled in the word. If we look at Jerusalem, we see it's interesting the first issue that we have in Jerusalem that comes up, we saw a couple of nights ago, was, had to do with money, right? Ananias and Sapphira. And God brought judgment on them. It was a financial issue that was raised. The next issue that comes up in that church in Acts chapter 6 is they're murmuring, they're complaining because people aren't being cared for. One, one writer that I've read says that Jerusalem seemed to be a very... Uh, pastoral care focus kind of a situation where, you know, if you weren't being cared for and visited and that kind of thing, then issues begin to come up. We don't see those issues in Antioch at all. The issues in Antioch have to do with what we're going to do with all these new believers that are coming in. It's just an interesting contrast there. Um, and one that I've been thinking about, I would encourage you to think about it in some ways too. So these people go back into Antioch, we don't know who they are, and they just begin to share Jesus. They have this burning love for Christ, and they have this desire to see their community reached for Jesus. Unnamed, faithful saints taking the gospel into their community. And they do it in a way 
this is what's kind of cool about it. They do it in a way that's understandable to that culture. I think these are Gentiles taking this message to Gentiles. And we see nowhere in here that they talk about Jesus as the Messiah. We've sung that tonight. We as New Testament Christians understand what it means to say that Jesus is the Messiah, the promised one, the fulfillment of God's promises. But these folks go back into Antioch and they don't start with the message that Jesus is the Messiah. They start with the message that Jesus is Lord. And there's a huge issue, there's a huge point for us to see there, church, is that we need to reach people where they are. Where they are. They, they may not be churched. They may not be a part of a community, uh, of a family that grew up in a Baptist church or in any kind of a church. There's a lot of folks like that in Roxborough now, more than there were 10, 15, 20 years ago. You know, we are not necessarily the Bible Belt anymore. And so we need to be careful as we go out and start sharing our faith and as we talk to people because a lot of people don't know what we're talking about when we ask them whether or not they've been saved. Saved from what? I didn't know I was in danger. Have you been washed in the blood? That's gross. Why would I take a bath in blood? Have you been redeemed? Redeemed? What do you mean? That's what I do with a coupon at the store. Well, brother, are you being sanctified? What the heck are you talking about? See, these folks who went into this community at Antioch met people where they were. And I think they were talking to them about, there's this man that we heard about. And he was not any normal man. And he came and he was doing good works and he was doing miracles. And he was teaching and he was crucified. And God raised him from the dead. And he's Lord of all now. God exalted him back up to heaven. We were told that by those who were there and we saw it and, and they saw it. And God's done a work in my life. And this Jesus who was crucified and, and raised and now is Lord of all is, is the one making decisions for me now. And he's forgiven me. And I, my life is not the way it was before. And people can communicate. They can relate to some of those things. I, so you're different now than you used to be. And the burden you carried from your mistakes and your sins, that's not what's controlling you anymore. I, I can identify with that. And you have people that love you and care for you. I can identify with that. You see where I'm going with this? You see, they weren't talking about Jesus as the Messiah now, they would learn that he's the Messiah. They would learn that he's the Christ because they're called Christians. But that's not where they reach people in their neighborhood. And man, God was using this. They proclaimed Jesus as Lord. And that's really all we know about these saints. And it's just an encouragement, okay? How often do you hear or do you think, I wish, fill in the blank, could get saved because they could really reach some people. You know, I wish Beyonce could get saved. She could, Rihanna, she could really, The Rock. Man, if The Rock got saved, some of you have no idea who I'm talking about. I can tell by looking at you. <laughs> oh, my word. Um, I wish Tom Hanks got saved. <laughs> Does that work? 
Um, maybe Mick Jagger. Anybody, anybody know who I'm talking about there? Boy, if Mick Jagger got saved, he could dance around the stage, man, and tell people about Jesus. No, 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 no. That's not God's pattern. He just uses unnamed saints who've been changed by the gospel and go into their hundreds and thousands and millions of pockets of influence and begin to share the difference that Jesus has made in their life. And before you know it, a family is changed, and then a neighborhood is changed, and then a community is changed. I mean, before you know it, a church is changed in that sense. So just faithful saints, just faithful things. You know, I think Paul, I was thinking about this. We're going to see Paul step into the scene just now. Saul, Paul comes, and he's not been in a church yet. He's not been ministering and serving in a church until he gets to Antioch. And we're going to see Paul begin to speak in, in, in a cultural context in places. We're going to, over in Acts 17, we're not going there, but if you go back to Acts 17, you're going to see Paul in the center of the philosophy of the day. He's, in, he's, he's there speaking to philosophers. And we see Paul begin to speak to them. Not about Jesus as the Messiah. He doesn't even start there. He starts with creation. And he begins to, the God who created all of these things, and he leads them then into the reality of the resurrection. I think Paul learned some of his, some of his gospel sharing techniques in Antioch. I think he could have learned them from some of these unnamed saints. I really do. So these unnamed saints just going in and sharing they were available, they were on fire for Jesus, and they took the good news of Christ into wherever they were. Then, follow along with me in the text. Things are happening in this town. This place is rocking, okay? And the report of this comes to the ears. Follow along with me in verse 22. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. And so Barnabas, in verse 25, went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. So not only was the news of what's going on in this church, in this community of faith, turning Antioch upside down, that news went south to Jerusalem, and it reached the ears of the leaders there. Something's going on up there. There's, there's Gentiles up there getting saved by the bucket full. We better go see what's going on. Well, I don't want to go. Do you want to go? No, I don't really want to go up there. Well, let's, who, let's send Barnabas. He gets along with everybody. We'll send Barnabas up there and let him check it out. And you know what? They were right. Uh, that's just speculation on my part of how that conversation went. But so they send Barnabas up there. And it's interesting. I, I mentioned a couple of nights ago, I'd love, I, I would really encourage you to spend some time studying this man of faith. He's, I think he is used by God to shape the New Testament church because he is used by God to minister and serve and shape Paul 
in some amazing ways. And I just would encourage you to spend some time studying Barnabas. But they send Barnabas. Why would they do that? Remember what we saw a couple of nights ago about Barnabas? He was trusted. He was loved. He was respected in the Jerusalem church. We saw that. Acts chapter 4. Thus Joseph, who is called by the apostles Barnabas, means the son of encouragement. He was a native of Cyprus, a Levite, it says. He sold a field belonging to him, brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. So that was the contrast that we saw between Ananias and Sapphira and Barnabas. Barnabas loved and trusted by that church. Now, as I'm talking about this, I hope you're thinking about people. I hope you'll be thinking about folks in your church that you love and trust. This is a message that goes to every single one of us tonight, but it goes to leadership and to those who are Sunday school teachers, those serving in a nursery, those working with children. It goes to all of those who are serving others within the body of Christ and thinking about how you serve, the attitude you serve with, and the characteristics that you serve with. So Barnabas was loved and trusted. He had demonstrated an ability to love people and to bring people together. We didn't look at this yet, but I'm not really talking tonight so much about Saul, but you remember he, Stephen is killed in Acts chapter 8. There's this young Pharisee standing on the side, watching it, approving it, holding the coats of those who are killing him. His name was Saul. In Acts chapter 9, God saves him just reaches down and saves him. And so over a period of time, Saul comes to Jerusalem to meet the leaders of the church and they want nothing to do with him. I mean, this guy's a terrorist. He's been killing Christians. And now he comes in saying he's one of us. Mm-mm, nuh-uh. I don't believe him. I don't trust him. And I can understand why they would say that, Right? It says in Acts chapter 9 and verse 26, And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas, it says, took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, had spoken to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. Barnabas came along beside this newly converted new Christian, unknown to the church, Saul, stood beside him and said, he's for real. I know God's at work in his life. And Barnabas comes along this encourager, encouraging Paul, encouraging the church. And it's just a beautiful picture of of how God's work is validated in the life of a brother through another brother who's just trusting the Lord and looking for grace I'm going to say that again. He's trusting the Lord and he's looking for grace. Because that's another characteristic. It says that Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. Why would Luke think it's important to tell us that Barnabas was a good man and full of faith? Remember the fruit of the Spirit? When you trust in Jesus, your sins are forgiven and you receive the Holy Spirit. And as you grow in your faith and in your love for Christ, that fullness of the Spirit, that that power and presence of Jesus in our lives becomes more and more real, more and more relevant to us, more and more of the controlling factor in our lives. 
And Paul says that that fruit of the Spirit in our lives is made evident through these Christ-like characteristics. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Goodness is one of those. Barnabas was a good man, and he was full of the Holy Spirit. He was a good man, not because of his own righteousness, but because of the presence of Christ in him and the work of the Holy Spirit through him. And as that life of Christ worked in and through Barnabas into the life of the fellowship of that church, it was seen by others. God was honored because of what they saw in the life of Brother Barnabas. And so he's a good man. He's good in relationship to the way he serves. He's good because of his relationship to Jesus and the righteousness that is his. He was full of faith. He's trusting Christ. He's trusting Jesus in his own life and in the life of the people around him. I love the model here, church, of a man who is building relationships and and nurturing those relationships based on the person and work of Jesus in his life. You can go to the bookstore. You can go on Amazon. You can buy a hundred books tonight if you want them on how to be a better friend, how to be a better person, how to have a better personality, how to work through these issues that you're having on and on and on and on and on. And I submit to you that a life that's surrendered to Christ, growing in the knowledge of Christ through his word, through your prayer life, through your fellowship with God's people, as God continues to work in your life and grow you in your maturity and in your likeness of Jesus, man, you're going to see people responding to that in ways that you could never imagine. And that includes lost people. They're going to be attracted to that. And so we see his goodness in that. You know, one of the things about Barnabas that I think we see played out here is he knows what it is to be an outsider. And he has a heart for that. He has a heart for that. And I would encourage you here at Theresa, and, and, and we encourage each other at Westwood in that regard, is, is just to have an eye out. One of the things that it says here about Barnabas is that he came and he saw the grace of God and he was glad. When was the last time you were glad because you saw the grace of God? Okay, let me ask this question. How do you know if you're seeing the grace of God? How do you know that? What do we look for? I read this in, a, I read this in a, an, an article. It's not original to me, but I, I read this article where someone said, Barnabas was a grace detector. He was a grace detector, okay? He, he had this little antenna on his head, you know? And when he saw the grace of God at work, it went, and it just drew him to it. Now, the contrast in there, in, the, in this article I read, was some people, they don't have an eye for grace. They have a critical eye. And so their antenna set too. But when they see something that, pops off in their antenna, it's, it's critical. That should be this way. Why are they doing that that way? Why is that person singing that way? And the article went on to say, and those people who are looking at it with a critical eye are carrying around with them a bucket of water. And every time they see the spark of grace, they go, and just put it out. Barnabas, on the other hand, when he saw that spark of grace, he put the fan to it and wanted to see it flame up. 
And believe you me, in a church that's diverse with new Christians, folks who aren't like us, there's going to be those embers of grace, and they need to be fanned up. They need to be blown up into a flame. And Barnabas saw the grace of God, and he was glad. And he was just used by God to encourage that church in so many ways. God was at work. The church was experiencing growth. There was things going on there in the midst of a culture that needed Christ and God's using this church in amazing ways. And I can just see it. This church is rocking. Barnabas is kind of at the center of attention. Now, he's a humble man. He's a self-effacing man. And think for a minute about how you or I might respond in a situation like that. You know that the big boys in, in Jerusalem sent me up here to check on things. The, you know, big A, the apostles down there. The bosses sent me up here to check on things, and things are rocking. I think I'll just entrench myself here. Maybe we'll bring in some associates, you know, and I can be lead pastor. I can be senior pastor. I can be kind of oversee this thing. Maybe I need a bigger, maybe I need a jet, you know, to fly around, take care of all these people. They didn't have jets. What do I, maybe I need more camels. I don't know. But it's easy when things are going well and you seem to be at the center of those things going well that you just want to take a little more control, take a little more of the spotlight, take a little more of the praise and the glory that's going on. I could see that happening. It happens all the time. Here's what Barnabas did. This church is blowing up. People are getting saved. People are coming to Christ. So what does Barnabas do? I need help. I need someone to come in and assist. I need some, someone to come in and serve beside me here. And he leaves and he goes to Tarsus looking for a man named Saul. And I think at this point in time, Barnabas knows enough about Saul to know that sooner than later, Saul's going to be the main man. He's a better speaker than I am. He's a Pharisee. He knows the scriptures better than I do. I can think of a whole lot of things that Paul probably knew better than Barnabas. And Barnabas sought him out and brought him in here. And God led him to do that, which is our third thing to look at. God called leaders in a church that's changing the world. You have unnamed people, unnamed saints, serving Jesus, reaching their community and family with Christ, and it's making a difference. And as they do that... As they do that, then the, the, the spirit of God and the presence of God just begins to change things in the life. And you have these key leaders who begin to step up. They're humble. They're respected. They're not seeking praise. They're not looking for, for any esteem on their part. Church, this, these are the kind of men you want leading you and serving you, okay? Please recognize that. It's easy in our culture, and I understand this. I was in business many years before I was a pastor. Susan didn't marry a preacher. That was the last thing on my mind when I married Susan. And so I've been in a business context. I've been in that business culture. And I know what it is to, to run a business, and you don't run churches that way. We're not a business. We're a body. And we don't have bosses. We have a king. His name is Jesus. And and yeah, we're wise and we do things in an orderly fashion because our God is a God of order. But the leaders and those that we want in there directing us are humble. They're self-effacing. 
They're looking for grace and they celebrate that grace when they see it. We want Barnabases. We want a bunch of Barnabases. And these God-called leaders that we see here are brought in and notice what they do. They begin to teach. And it says, for a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. Now, Paul, Saul, has been kind of off the scene for a long time, okay? And I'm not going to go back and, and try to build a timeline there, but it's been 10, 10, at least 10 years since Saul met Jesus on that road. And he's been out in the middle of nowhere. God's been at work in his life. He's been back in his home area of Tarsus. And Saul is found by Barnabas and brought to Antioch and brought along beside Barnabas, and they begin to serve in this church, they begin to teach in this church, and they begin to disciple in this church, and they come into that setting. Scholars tell us that Paul's probably in his mid-30s. He's not real old yet. He's, this is his first church. And he's brought into this situation. He's been working through his own beliefs and his own doctrines. His, he knows Jesus. He's met Jesus. He understands that Jesus is the fullness of all that the Old Testament looked for. But I'm going to tell you what, right now, right now is when Saul really begins to learn. I knew Jack squat when I got to Westwood. I still don't know much. But believe you me, I didn't learn a whole lot of anything in seminary. I mean, I, I learned some scholarly stuff, I guess, but I didn't learn what it meant to minister and serve until the people of Westwood began to teach me what it meant to, West, to, to, to minister and serve. And they were very patient. They were very gracious. They were very kind and still are, still are. And the way a church gathers around a pastor, a minister, a deacon, an elder, and just comes along beside them and serves them as they are being served and just loves them and nurtures them. Some of you are much more spiritually mature than I am. Some of you are much more spiritually mature, maybe, than Ben. I don't know, but, you know. And, and the way you come along beside and encourage, I just, I just, with all my heart, believe Saul learned so much from these believers there in Antioch. And they were such a blessing to him. And he was a blessing to them, and he began to disciple them and teach them. And how did he do that? What discipleship method did they use? Andrew's already talked to you about it. We, they just began to teach them the word. Write this down or just turn over in your Bible and just think about it for just a second. I just want to throw this in. I think there's a lot of ways that we see Paul and Barnabas discipling people. But I think you can summarize it here. He says in Colossians chapter 1, Him we proclaim. Him we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ for this I toil struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Do you hear that? At the heart of discipleship is proclaiming Jesus, teaching Jesus, proclaiming him. First and foremost, it's about learning about Christ and his word. How do you do that? Well, Paul says we teach, he says, and we warn Teaching and warning is just both sides of the same process of bringing the Bible in front of each other and just saying this is what pleases the Lord and this is what he warns us to stay away from. There's, there's encouragement and accountability in the process of discipleship. Teaching and admonishing. 
The way he does that and the reason that he does that is present everyone mature in Christ. What's the goal for Theresa Baptist Church? What's the goal for Westwood, East Rock? What's the goal for whatever church you attend? It's to be filled with people who are maturing in Christ. Not numbers, but disciples. Growing in Christ. We want to present everyone mature, he says, in Christ. And how is that? Is that going to be easy? No, Paul says, for this, I toil and I struggle. There's nothing more rewarding in my years of ministry than just coming along beside a brother, walking with him and seeing him mature in Christ, maybe begin to take on a role of leadership of his own. You know, ladies coming along beside other sisters in Christ and seeing them mature and grow in Christ. There's nothing more rewarding in that, and there's nothing harder under the heavens. It's hard work. It's, it, it just is. It takes time. It takes effort. It takes prayer. It takes accountability. It takes responsibility. It takes commitment. And Paul, and Paul says, this is what I'm working for. He says, with, with, how does he do it? With all of his energy that he powerfully works within me. We can't do it ourselves. It's not going to be easy. There are shortcuts that we might think would get us there like other activities and projects and no it's just walking with people praying for people speaking the word into each other's lives and growing together in Christ in community that's what discipleship is and that's what's going on here in Antioch as Paul and Barnabas lead them through it and it had such an impact in that community that here for the first time they're known as Christians so I ask you again based on what we do in our churches based on what the community around us see us doing in our churches, based on what they hear about us in the community because of what we do in our churches, what would they call us? What name would they, what name does a culture around us, even in our country, equate with followers of Christ today? Think about it for a minute. Maybe Republican, maybe pro-life, maybe conservative, maybe bigoted, maybe, I could just go on. And, and some of those, some of those aren't bad, some of them are, okay? I'm not, I'm just, I'm throwing out names. What would people call us based on what they see or what they hear And my point is simply that in Antioch, these people loved Jesus. They were carrying Jesus out into their workplace and into their community. And that place was being turned upside down. And you guys are like little Christ. What would they call us? And this this church... As these men are shepherding them and leading them as they're being discipled. The last thing I see, look at verse 27. Now in these days prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the spirit that there would be a great famine over the world. This took place in the days of Claudia. So the disciples determined, look at that, verse 29. The disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So here's a people, a diverse people, people from all over the place, coming to faith in Christ, growing in the word, 
becoming more and more grounded in Christ and in their faith in Jesus. They're beginning to understand what it means to follow Christ, to talk about him out in their families, in their communities, in their workplaces, at the store. Their love and devotion for Jesus is making a difference there. And as they begin to grow in Christ, word comes to them of brothers and sisters in another place that are getting ready to go through a tough time. And all of a sudden we see bubbling up out of these folks this generosity a giving spirit in the life of these christians now i think they had seen that and learned it from barnabas because the church in jerusalem had seen it and learned it from barnabas but all of a sudden we just see them responding to this need around them and they've watched it being lived out by those who are leading them and loving them and we see this generosity here. They're willing to give. And they don't know these folks in Jerusalem. They don't, all they know is what they've heard about them. And on their own, it says, the disciples decided, the, the church there, those followers of Christ determined, according to their ability, to send relief to the brothers in Judea. And they did it, sending it by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. They were generous with their possessions. But there's one other thing I want you to see. If you'll just look over in Acts chapter 13... Skip chapter 12 and look over in Acts chapter 13. I want you to see what it says just there, and I'm going to close with this. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who's called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. So there's the names of those leaders there. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. They were generous with their possessions. And they were generous with their people. And Theresa Church, I want to tell you something. The greatest blessing that a church can know. Westwood, you know this. Hear me in this. The greatest blessing you can know is to see God call out your people and send them out with the gospel to build up his kingdom. It's, man, what a, what a blessing that is on the church. And he calls out your best. The ones you think you can do without the least. Oh, what are we going to do without him or her? Barnabas and Saul were at the center of what's going on in Antioch. And what does God do? He takes them, calls them out. And the church gladly, willingly filled with praise and worship says, Amen. Send them out. Pray for that. Continue to pray for that church. Parents, would we be so bold as to pray that God would raise up our children, grow them up mightily in Christ, and send them out to reach the nations for his glory? Would we pray that God would work in our student ministry to raise up disciples of Jesus? Ground them in the word and send them out for God's glory to the nations? Oh, what a blessing it was to see God at work in the life of this church. This church of unnamed, faithful people turned the world upside down. I'm telling you, Antioch was the center of this explosion that changed the world. And God, I believe with all of my heart, wants to continue to do that through churches like Theresa and East Rock and Westwood. And faithful, faithful people of God loving Jesus and taking Jesus out into their community. Here's, 
we're going to close this way. Andrew's going to come in just a minute and, and, and lead us in a song. And I'm, and I'm just going to ask you as we close tonight, you've listened well this week. You've, you've just encouraged me in so many ways with some of your comments and just the way you've affirmed that God's speaking to your heart through his word. And I'm, I'm encouraged by that, humbled by that. And I want to challenge you in that church tonight. Because I believe with all of my heart, this church is a sleeping giant. I believe that. I've been here 30 years. I've, I've watched your church. I, I believe it with all of my heart, Theresa. This room's too small. This room's too small. And I believe our hearts are too small. And I believe God wants to just plant in our hearts this vision of his glory and of this community being flipped upside down with the gospel so that our neighbors are talking about what's going on through Christ in the lives of these people. And so God wants to raise up a generation of deep-seated Jesus-loving students. He wants to raise up godly, humble, self-effacing deeply in love with Jesus men. He wants to raise up sisters in Christ who are mature in their faith and loving Christ and loving their families and being used by God in their workplaces and in their circles of influence. God wants to do more than we can ask or imagine, church. And Acts just lays out for us this picture of what God started then and wants to continue through us. Would you stand with your leaders and your pastor and say, Praise God, I want to see God do that here. Would you stand with your wife and just say, I want to see God do that in our marriage and in our family. And maybe God would just, has crushed you. You know, I'm, I'm not sure I'd like Barnabas and I wouldn't want to step into the spotlight and take some of the praise for what's going on here. Just confess that. It's, it's, just confess that pride and that, that prompt, that, you know, that, that willingness that many of us have. I do. I'm, I'm quick to step into that spotlight. That's, that's sin. Just confess it. Lord, I want you to get the glory. I want to be like John the Baptist. You know? may, may he increase and me, and me decrease. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word tonight. I thank you that as Ben has said tonight, uh, a couple of nights as we prayed, your word is, is living, it's powerful, it's sharper than any two-edged sword, Lord. We all are sitting here tonight naked before your eyes, spiritually speaking. You see, you know, you understand every thought, every intention. You know it all, Lord. We are stark naked before you tonight. Nothing is hidden from your sight. So God, as we sit here, I pray you would do that work in us through your word and your spirit to conform us into the likeness of Christ. Lord, I'm praying that for every brother and sister in this room tonight. Father, maybe there is someone here tonight, Lord, who has never truly surrendered to Jesus. And Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit, through your word, would pierce that heart. And tonight, God, they'd recognize that Jesus is Lord. As we sang tonight, he is worthy. He's the only one that's worthy. And the one who was worthy of all praise and glory came and died on the cross so that that person tonight, Lord, would not have to be punished for their sin and not perish in it, but have life. Father, save someone tonight, I pray.
And tonight, Lord, for your brothers, for our brothers and sisters in Christ, and for for this church, for Westwood, East Rock, for other churches that may be here tonight, Lord, just fill us with a holy vision and ambition to make much of Christ in our lives and see this town turned upside down. See this world changed through the gospel. Thank you that that's your heart and your desire, Lord Jesus, and we pray it in your name. Amen. In a a minute, we'll sing together. Before we do, I want to sing a song that's, in some ways, it's a testimony. Uh, I really long to see the Lord do miraculous, divine things in my community. And uh, what I have seen is that the process involves a lot of uprooting me. Just a lot of uprooting me. And the Bible uses a word, surrender. And and a few months ago, I was trying to think, you know, that word surrender doesn't... What's a different word that resonates? And the Lord brought the word losing to mind. Sometimes it feels when you give the lordship over to Jesus, sometimes it feels like you lost some control. And... uh, So that's what this song is about, and uh, I believe there is a cost to this kind of growth uh, that Pastor Gerald is, is recommending, and the question is, is it worth it? I'm losing my mind, I'm losing control, I'm losing my diversified portfolio. I'm losing my self-esteem and the glossy sheen of my identity. But I don't care what I lose. I don't care what I lose. I don't care what I lose. If I get you losing face, personal space, and my free time. Losing everything society claims to be my right. I'm losing arguments and privacy. The way I was raised in my favorite routines, traditions, ambitions, suspicions, inhibitions, my self-sufficiency. And God, we've lost efficiency. But I don't care what I lose. Shame. 
losing my fear. My pain and anger, lust and loneliness, these endless tears, losing the ache. Where is that sting? When every grave is swallowed in your victory. So I don't care what I lose. I don't care what I lose. I don't care what I lose if I get you. I don't care what I lose. I don't care what I lose. I don't care what I lose if I get stand and sing of Christ, the solid rock. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest friend.
uh, not a whole lot to say. I'm, I'm grateful, Gerald, for the the labor of bringing God's word, and I know that God has delivered that to us through you. I wrote my notebook tonight, grounded in the word of God, going to the nations for the glory of God. And that's my prayer for us. My prayer for Theresa, my prayer for Westwood, my prayer for East Rock, my prayer for every church here in our county, that we would be grounded in the word and going to the nations for the glory of our great God. I'm a bit sad to pray this prayer because I have enjoyed these last few nights, but I'm going to pray and close this out. I hope, I hope that, that God will continue to deal with you as he's dealing with me and he's dealing with us. But he's been good to us this week, church. He's been very good to us this week. Let's pray together. Lord, it is a gift of your kindness that you have given us your word. The word tells us that you've breathed it out. It's useful for teaching, for correction, for training in righteousness that we may be mature and complete. Lord, you have given us a deeply beneficial kind gift this week as we have heard clearly from your word that your church is called first and foremost to the gospel. That you call us to be men and women that are centered around the glory of your son Jesus Christ. Lord, you call us not just to be centered around that glory, but to be going with that glory to take it to the ends of the earth, starting with our neighbors, starting with our homes, starting with our churches. God, I pray that we would be an Acts 2 church devoted to the teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, to the prayers. God, I pray that we would be a church that is holy, not just in our behavior, but in our hearts. God, I pray, I pray that we would be a church that puts petty things aside, petty worldly things like prejudice and pride. I pray, God, that we'd put that aside. I pray, oh God, that we would be a church full of Barnabases, that we would see the glory of God, we would see the grace of God in our own lives and in the lives of others and celebrate that, but that we would also be ambassadors of encouragement, that we would see God at work in others and bring them in. God, I pray that we, not just the resale, Lord, your saints here in Person County, I pray that we would be grounded in your word and going with the gospel for your glory. Thank you, O oh God, that you have given us your word this week. May it not fall on deaf ears. Use it 
we know that you will. And so we pray this with full hearts and great faith in your great name. Amen. Y'all have a wonderful evening.